0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Today we'll be talking about the latest developments with the January 6th committee, the trouble with witnesses, including the Steve Bannon trial and Lindsey Graham summons to Georgia, and the latest developments as President Biden tries to marshal federal resources to protect abortion. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions. We know you've had a lot of them this week at the end of the show. But first, before we get started, Kim, I wanted to talk about a piece that you wrote in the Boston Globe this week that really hit home with me. You know which piece I'm talking about. Do you want to tell
1: us about it? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It happened when I uh, was running errands and I decided to hop on the subway this week for the first time in two and a half years thinking, okay, I I like making that choice instead of calling an Uber. It's more um, sustainable and it's a better thing to do. But I have to say it was really horrifying seeing the number of people who are still choosing, even on something like a subway train, to go unmasked at a time where we know – covid subvariants are running rampant they're really not being stopped even if for those who are vaccinated or have had infections before and it just really made me feel uncomfortable and i just thought to myself, wow, I really wish I lived in a world where the collective experience of our society going through a deadly pandemic would make us more likely to want to protect each other, even if you think you're going to be fine, to want to do that for your neighbor. And that really isn't the case. And so I talked to some medical experts who basically confirmed what I was fearing is that this pandemic is far from over. It could even get worse. But the fact that all the mitigation efforts now are so difficult, if not impossible to reimpose. So everybody's on their own. And that really made me sad. And especially I have asthma, I don't want COVID. To my knowledge, I've never caught it. I've never had a positive COVID test, but I don't want to start now because that could have really big implications for me and my family. And I just wish others felt that way, Joyce. It makes
0: so much sense to me. Jill, have you thought about this issue too? How do you react to that? I I
2: react pretty much like Kim does. I am being much more cautious than other people. I am masking. And with the new variant, the B5, it's contagious outdoors. And so that's a whole new thing where even at the farmer's market, I'm putting on a mask again because I want to be safe and I want to keep other people safe. And I'm visiting my goddaughter and her family, and they just had a wedding and many of the people there tested positive, so they all tested before I came here to make sure that it was safe for me to be here. And I think, I I hope our listeners are taking adequate precautions because we love you all and we want you to stay healthy and stay with us. And I think it's time to go back. I was particularly disappointed with our governor um, who may have let his presidential ambitions get in the way. And he is now taking away many of the precautions that have been in place for college students, for example. And I know people are getting tired of the restrictions, and so am I. And I'm doing things that I wouldn't have done before, but I'm doing them masked. And so I think masks are really the answer.
0: Barb, what about you? I know um, you, like me, have been very careful throughout. How is this all making you feel?
3: Yeah, the same. I, I read Kim's piece and uh, and and really th- found it to, uh, to speak to me. I really just find it bewildering. You know, I try not to be judgmental. I know everybody has their own situation to deal with. But I wear a mask everywhere. And, you know, where I live in Ann Arbor, I go to university events. Most people are masked. In our courthouse, masking has recently become optional, but mo- many people are still wearing them. And so when I get into other places, the grocery store, or I was at a dinner the other night, and I'm often the only one wearing a mask. And I, I, I wanna say, am I the only one reading these news reports about variants being up? I actually had COVID uh, fairly recently um, and I'm over it, but I'm still wearing a mask because you know, it isn't about yourself, it's about um, being a, a spreader to others. And I have elderly family members and just strangers, kids, other people in the community, right? I mean, the way to prevent the spread is by wearing masks. And I hear your point, Jill, about people are getting tired of it. I'm tired of it. But, you know, it's like saying, well, we got tired of wearing seatbelts. You know, we wore them for a couple of years. Yeah. And then, you know, exactly. who wants to wear that seatbelt? So I don't wear it anymore. Like, I think we got to wear it and, you know, we wear the mask until it's over. It's, it's really not that hard. And so I'm, I'm mostly bewildered why people don't wear them. And so- you know, listeners, um, uh, we respect your freedom, but, you know, mask up for, to, to show your love for others.
2: And I love your analogy. That's a great analogy to seatbelts. Uh, <laughs> and it is it is so contagious now. All of my friends are, you know, double boosted and wear masks and are taking all kinds of precautions. And several of them have gotten COVID recently. Yeah. It just seems to be really
1: spreading fast. So. I I really hope people will listen to your advice, Barb. And right now, this this subvariant seems to be producing overall, not in every case, but overall mild symptoms. People are still dying from COVID, but the majority of people. But but you know one thing that. The experts that I talked to in writing the story said to me is, well, we don't know what BA7 or BA9 or BAX will bring. Maybe those will bring more Mm. severe infections that are also uh, still infecting people who have been infected before or who are vaccinated, which is why letting our guard down now is just not a good idea.
0: You know, we vacationed in Portugal, and it was such a calculated risk to fly. In, in Portugal, virtually everybody is vaccinated, and we planned a trip where we did things like, you know, being on a boat going down the river with just our one, one other couple um, group of friends, uh, but, but we knew flying was a risk, but so here's the horrible thing. We fly, we get home, we're fine, we test, we test, we test. Our youngest kid got COVID while we were gone. He called us the first day. He was positive. He and his group of friends have gone two and a half years and never gotten positive. They all went up to Swanee for the 4th of July, came home, all positive. So we've got him down in the basement and we're very fierce. Don't you dare come upstairs. We don't want you to give us COVID. And y'all, my husband caught COVID from him. He um, tested positive this morning. So I think my time has come, and I think everything that you said, Kim, and Jill and Barb's wisdom holds, right? We can't live in a paranoid way. Sometimes we have to do stuff like go to Portugal and hope that our kid at home won't get us sick. Um, But at the same time, there's no reason not to wear a mask. It's just such an
1: easy thing to do. Right.
2: This week, the January 6th Committee had another blockbuster hearing, this time focused on the role of domestic extremism in the planning and violence of the 6th. Although Representative Cheney's surprise ending, hinting at possible witness tampering by the former president, got almost as much attention as the video and live testimony about the events of the 6th. Barb, let's look into what we learned about these domestic extremist groups their role in the January 6th violence and the links of those groups to former President Trump directly are through his close associates like Roger Stone and General Flynn. In other words, what does it mean in terms of the culpability of Donald Trump?
3: Well, we heard from this witness, a man named Jason Van Tatenhove, who was a former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers. And, you know, as an insider like that, he was able to explain what the Oath Keepers are all about Um, and he said, make no mistake, they are a violent militia group. They want to start a war. They fantasize about a fight like that. They call themselves the Oath Keepers because they recruit mostly from former law enforcement and military members who took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. But they have this really warped view of uh, of, of what the constitution says, um, in that they, uh, Stuart Rhodes, who is their leader, according to, um, the witness said that, you know, he very much wanted president Trump to invoke the insurrection act and then call them up to active duty on January 6th so that they could fight back against the insurrection, meaning the vote in the Capitol. And so just a completely backwards view as to who were the insurrectionists uh, and and who were the militia. But, you know, these are not uh, the National Guard militia that is referred to in the Second Amendment. These are private armies and there is nothing legitimate about them. Um, And to get to your question about connections to Donald Trump, you know, we saw some really interesting things there. We saw uh, Roger Stone, a close associate, someone who was in the Trump war room at the Willard Hotel on January 5th and 6th, um, taking his own uh, initiation oath uh, as a member of of one of these groups. He talked about how I'm a Western chauvinist and I refuse to apologize for my contributions to the modern world. Uh, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of this group, was on an encrypted chat that called itself Friends of Stone. And boy, I'll tell you what, if I were the Justice Department, I would do everything I can to get my hands on that encrypted chat because the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys have been charged with seditious conspiracy. This is a very, very serious charge. This is the closest charge we have in non-wartime with a a declared war with a foreign government uh, to treason. It says that it is the use of force to oppose the government of the United States. And the Oath Group and the P- Proud Boys Group have been charged with that, for not just showing up at the Capitol and getting a little out of hand, but plotting, surveilling, leaving weapons surrounding the city so that they could be brought in, uh, forming formations they called stacks, one that was looking for Mike Pence, another that was looking for Nancy Pelosi. If you can connect up Donald Trump, to those groups and, you know, supersede the seditious conspiracy indictment to add people like Roger Stone and even Donald Trump. Woo, that is, uh, you know, the grand slam home run of all criminal charges.
0: You know, Barb, it's so fascinating that you say that because DOJ already has cooperators in that case. There's an an Mm -hmm. Arab Alabama man uh, named Joshua James who's cooperating and and two more, a a Georgia and a North Carolina man. So three Southerners. And I'll be interested whether we'll learn details as to whether the DOJ has been able to get into the chat through them, because I think you're dead on the money about what matters here.
2: And I'm hoping the Department of Justice is listening, because they should be getting into that, and they should be following the advice of Van Tottenhove, who said, let's not mince words. These are violent militia, and uh, I'm going to put that on my uh, Twitter feed under hashtag say this, not that.
3: Do you have a, do you have a violent militia pin, Jill?
2: <laughs> I don't. Uh, we look, need to get a militia pin.
3: I need a militia pin.
2: Violent right, t- militia. Yeah. Pen. I don't know. A Violent <laughs> militia. Yes. Well, there is no other kind, as far as <laughs> I can tell. Kim, let me ask you. We've known for years that the domestic threat to our democracy is greater than the foreign one. So why is our federal response still focused on foreign threats? Not just our federal response, but our federal laws. And how did the FBI miss the specific warning signs of the impending violence of January
1: 6th? Yeah, this is a great question, Jill. And it's something I have been uh, looking into and reporting on for several years. For the past, you're right, for the past several years, if you look at the FBI threat assessment that's done every year, They have been saying, even during the Trump administration, even though they tried to downplay it a little bit, that the greatest terrorism threat to Americans are domestic. In fact, it's domestic extremism coming from the right wing. Um, And... That was, again, tried to tried to be downplayed in the last administration, but that has been factually the threat. But since 9-11, after 9-11, the federal government really prioritized fighting terrorism as a top priority. And given... Uh, what happened on 9-11, it was really focused on foreign terrorism. We got new laws, including the Patriot Act, uh, which expanded the ability to uh, investigate and charge uh, on domestic terror charges. But at the same time, the there was a lack of attention, a lack of adequate attention being played, being paid to domestic extremism, even though it was growing. Whether it was from certain militia groups, anti-government groups, uh, hate groups, white supremacist groups, they're not um, all all homogeneous, but they are all dangerous. And we can see on January 6th, where a lot of these groups coordinate and come together what the impact should be. So I've talked to a lot of people, some call for new laws, uh, point to the fact that Domestic terrorism is not a federal crime. That's not something that can be investigated or charged. And so they believe that that hamstrings um, federal investigators. Others I talk to say, you know, what, no, we don't need new laws. <laughs> what we need is for the FBI to prioritize the laws that we already have, things like seditious conspiracy, and investigate and charge them. And most of all, for the FBI to collect and publish data on far right and other domestic violent uh Incidents and other domestic extremist groups, and have a coordinated counterterrorism oversight function happening with federal agents agencies in a way that isn't happening right now. They say it's not a matter of not having resources or not having the laws, it's not having the will, it's not having the organization. A lot of people point to different reasons why this is so hard, including the fact that for a lot of law enforcement, in a lot of parts of our country, they are more closely aligned to some of these anti-government or white, um, white nationalist groups than they would like to admit. And it's... Um, there's just not an appetite to go after mm-hmm. them because they see them more as allies, um, but that is something I think that Christopher Ray from the top should really prioritize, as well as uh, Merrick Garland, and really say, "Look, we're going to gather this data. We're going to we're going to ask. We're going to require states to give us this data. We're going to coordinate, share information, so that we don't get caught flat-footed in another January 6th type incident." So
2: Joyce and Barb, I had some related questions to ask you, and maybe just as a follow-up, because Kim kind of mentioned what I was had in mind, and that is, I, I wanted to ask you, Joyce, about Congress's role is to pass new laws to combat what the January 6th committee is revealing, and we've learned a lot from those hearings. Are there any specific laws you think they should be considering adding to the arsenal of weapons we could use against domestic terrorists?
0: So domestic terrorism per se, and and there are a lot of folks who have called for a domestic terrorism-specific statute. In my experience as a prosecutor, I could always put together all of the tools that I needed from existing laws in order to prosecute militia groups or terror groups. So I'm not as, as... Firm on the need for a domestic terrorism statute for practical purposes, although I think it would set an important standard. And as Kim says, we need our leaders to speak with one voice on this issue. You know, we need folks like Chris Ray at the FBI um, to talk about this. We need the January 6th committee to talk about the information that they've gathered on domestic terror. But if we're thinking about the committee's larger purpose in putting together information on January 6th and taking proactive steps to prevent a repeat, I'm a big fan of Liz Cheney's Uh, suggestion—those are words I never thought would come out of my mouth—but yes, I'm a big fan of Liz Cheney's suggestion that we should have enhanced penalties for presidential dereliction of duty. I think that's important. One of the keys at this point, though, is re-examining the 1887 Electoral Count Act, which governs the counting of electoral votes for president and Congress. That was, of course, the trigger point for all of Trump's crazy plans to hold on to power. And the statute was written a long time ago. It's in need of a serious tune-up if we're going to keep the Electoral College, although personally, I'd rather like to see us dump the Electoral College at this point. I guess that's a topic for another day. I, I bet let's all
2: vote. Kim, are you for getting rid of the Electoral College? I'm for reforming
1: it.
3: Barb? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, the devil's in the details. But, um, uh, you know, the whole idea of, frankly, Senate representation, the same in Wyoming as it is in California, I think is undemocratic. And so I think a full examination of that is in order. But I think it's probably a political nonstarter.
2: I agree with you on that. I think getting rid of the Electoral College is a great idea. I think dividing California into five states is also a great idea because (laughs) they have enough people to justify having 10 senators. Uh, But anyway, okay. So Barb, until those laws are enacted, is there a way that the FBI and prosecutors can better focus the resources they already have?
3: Yeah, you know, one thing that is um, interesting is, I think I disagree with Joyce in one respect, and that is a domestic terrorism statute. And I think it's needed not so much for prosecution of cases, because usually if you have people who are dead or hurt, you can charge them with state offenses but it's to allow federal investigators to conduct a proactive investigation. If there is an investigation into a domestic terrorism group because they're planning something violent, then you can use a lot of surveillance tools. You can use wiretaps and use informants and uh, all kinds of things that can help disrupt an attack before it occurs. Yeah, but we've always
0: been able to do that, right? When we did KKK cases, when we had sovereign citizen cases, um I never had trouble getting the authority that I needed. So I, I don't have a, pro- a problem with doing it. I'm just not sure like tell me what tools it would give
3: me that I didn't already have. Well, I'll tell you. I had cases involving mass shootings that there was no federal offense for. And so there are a lot of times when these cases evade federal in, in investigations because there is not a federal offense on the table or the only offense you can look at is, you know, a weapons offense as opposed to something that encompasses the full Uh, scope of their conduct, which is, you know, I would say parallel to the international terrorism statute, which is violent conduct designed to Mm -hmm. the loss of human life with a political motivation that instead of transcending national boundaries— transcends state boundaries. But you know, one area, Joyce, where I think you could do this work that they just haven't, and this may maybe requires more of a culture change at the FBI, which might be easier to achieve than uh, a domestic terrorism statute, which will certainly be, you know, it's hard to pass anything through Congress these days, let alone something that, you know, both the left and the right has, I think, legitimate concerns about civil liberties violations. But one area, um, you may recall when Chris Ray ch- testified and also Jill Sanborn, a high-level official at the Justice Department, they were asked, how, how is it that you didn't know about January 6th? And they said things like, well, we can't just go in willy-nilly and you know, look at people's communications. We don't have the ability to do that. Um, And that's really not quite right. But Mm -mm. it is because I think they put such kid gloves on areas involving civil rights violations. And I also think it's because they don't investigate civil rights violations as robustly as they investigate terrorism. In terrorism cases, they are prowling around in chat rooms. They are, if they see something troubling, they introduce an informant and they start talking to that person. And then the person says, let's DM on Twitter. And then they do that. And the person pretends to be, you know, a, uh, a, 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 Someone who's like-minded, a fellow traveler. Um, And you don't see that in the civil rights arena when somebody's in a hate crimes group. And it's because they are really hands-off because of concerns about First Amendment um, uh, rights that if someone is expressing ideology about white supremacy or something of the like, that they should leave hands-off. And I don't see any difference um, between the ideology expressed, whether it's white supremacy or an Islamic state. It's the conduct that you're looking at. It's when someone crosses over and starts expressing ideas of violence that you cross over. So I think you could do it within the civil rights program. But if you talk to people within the FBI, Joyce, even our friends who are there, who are really high level people, they'll say, oh, you you can't do that. That's civil rights. That's not part of the counterterrorism program. And I think they need to rethink um, domestic terrorism to encompass those things. And if they did, then we wouldn't need a domestic terrorism statute. We could look at these things as hate crimes because if someone's plotting to kill people based on their their race or their ethnicity or some other kind of thing, um, you could get to a lot of it. I, I guess I shouldn't say it's it would get all of it because it wouldn't get all of the politically motivated anti-government sentiment. It would get the sentiment based on race or uh, sexual orientation and some of those kinds of uh, characteristics.
0: It's a really great idea. Barb McQuaid for next director of the FBI.
1: (laughs) I love it.
2: That is a great idea. And I think that having something that clearly spells out that domestic terrorism warrants a wiretap would in itself be a major step forward because I think the reluctance is unwarranted and unsafe for all of us. But anyway, Kim, how did the rise of militia, as we should be calling these extremist groups, and as the former Oath Keeper employee said it, it was, how did it happen in America and how easily can the right-wing radicalization that happened on January 6th be repeated? And can it be stopped? Yeah,
1: I think it's important, and I'm I'm glad you used the word radicalization. I was really grateful for the testimony of Stephen Ayers, who is not a member of the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or any other group. He was motivated by the words and lies of Donald Trump to go to the Capitol and 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 rush the Capitol on that day, and he explained exactly why that happened. Um, and, you know, he's cooperating with the committee. He expressed contrition and and realized now that what he was told was a lie, but that's radicalization, you know? I don't think people think about it in that way. When they think about radicalization, they think about what happens with ISIS and what happens with Al-Qaeda. This is what happened to American citizens who were not previously associated with these groups, and I'm really glad that he expressed that in a way that America can understand, and if you didn't hear his testimony, go back and listen to it, because that can happen again, I think, but for the sharing of this information between, uh, federal law enforcement agencies, um, their cooperation in investigating it and encouraging people like that to come forward. I mean, he's charged with crimes as well. I'm sure his cooperation is probably, um, urged in an effort to, to, to help his own case, but I think that's okay. Um, I, I think having that is important. Having people like him speak out is important so people understand how this works um, and that this isn't just people. If you're not an, a, an oath keeper, that doesn't mean that you're immune from it. Or if you, the people you know aren't oath keepers, it doesn't mean that they're immune from it. Exactly.
2: I thought Mr. Ayers' testimony was really powerful when he was talking about, I got radicalized by social media and I got off it And I started doing my own research. And then I realized that I had been misled. So that was, I thought, an important point that he made.
3: Well, Steve Bannon's trial is set to begin this week. That really is a past the popcorn moment, I think. He's charged with contempt of Congress. <laughs> and I have a popcorn pin. Beautiful. <laughs> well, you should be wearing it. Um, but it seemed like a good time to discuss some witness issues that have been in the news. You know, for Bannon, of course, he refused to comply with that subpoena to testify before the January 6th committee back in October, asserting executive privilege, um, we've also now seen Senator Lindsey Graham challenge a subpoena from Fulton County uh, DA Fonnie Willis on the basis that it is privileged under the speech or debate clause of the Constitution and then this past week Liz Cheney announced at the hearing at the end of that last January 6 hearing um she's ha- got this way right of dropping like that last little cliffhanger that little blockbuster like to <laughs> tune in next week for the the, the Netflix show yeah. um that a witness received a phone call from Donald Trump and that the committee has referred that matter to DOJ for investigation woo so let's talk about each of those a little bit um Jill you're our executive privilege expert having participated in the case that defined executive privilege in the U.S. versus Nixon case. Um, Based on the court's recent rulings there in Washington, um, does Bannon have any defense under executive privilege? No, he does not.
2: (laughs) And to put it simply, um, and the judge was actually quite clear and the defense attorney said, what's the point in going to trial here if there's no defenses? And uh, I would answer Mr. Schoen that maybe there isn't a point and it's time to plead guilty. Um, The judge's order in the Bannon case just repeated everything that we know about executive privilege. And I bet that everyone listening knows all these rules, but there is a crime fraud exception, which this would probably fall into. It's a privilege that belongs to the current POTUS, not the former POTUS. So there never was a possibility. And the times involved here Bannon was not an employee of the government. He wasn't in a position that you could have asserted executive privilege even if it had happened while Donald Trump was president. So there's a lot of reasons why there's no privilege here and that it was absurd. And then finally, of course, even if there was privilege, it doesn't mean you don't have to show up, that you can just thumb your nose and say, this is gonna be the misdemeanor from hell and I'm gonna make sure that we call in everybody from the January 6th committee and Nancy Pelosi. And he would have had to go in and in response to a question, say, I claim privilege as to that. And then there's also the reason that Donald Trump says he didn't actually ever invoke privilege for Bannon. So I don't know if he's throwing Bannon under the bus, but it certainly sounds like that to me. So in this case, as in the Nixon case, the final thing is that in a criminal proceeding, or in a Senate hearing or a House hearing, the public interest will outweigh the privilege, and it can be waived as it was in Watergate. The president was told he had no privilege because it was too important and the evidence needed to be presented in our criminal case, and the same would hold true here.
3: Yeah, this is what we used to refer to in my former office as a slow motion guilty plea. Like, you know, he even said, <laughs> well, there's no defense yet. What's the point of going to trial if there's no defense? And the judge is like, well, yeah, exactly. You know, you have a right to plead guilty if you want to. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Well, next, let's talk about Lindsey Graham's argument. So the privilege arguments keep getting, you know, more and more creative, shall we say. Um, He has said that he is shielded from testifying in uh, Georgia there by the speech or debate clause. Kim, what on earth is the speech or debate
1: clause? And does
3: Graham have any argument here?
1: So the speech and debate clause basically shields lawmakers from liability from what they say. And do based on their actual legitimate legislative activity. So people can be rhetorical when they're giving a speech on the House or Senate floor, right? And they can't be sued for libel or something based on that. They can uh, debate each other and those debates can get heated and and um, they can't really be, if it's in advancement of, of legislative purposes, which is pretty broad, then they're generally okay. What it does not do is shield against criminal acts or other liability or unlawfulness. You cannot engage in unlawful behavior and then turn around and say, nope, speech and debate clause, I'm covered. So in this case, if he... Pressured Brad Raffensperger in Georgia to try to reverse the results of the uh, election there. For example, that would not be covered by speech and debate. And like other things, the way to assert this would be for Senator Graham to cooperate with this investigation, and then in response to certain questions, say, "Well, you know, there's the speech and debate clause. I think I, I object based on on that, and I think that it isn't uh, applicable." Again, he still needs to cooperate. He, didn't he claim in the beginning he was going to? cooperate and then suddenly he's like oh nope can't I'm a, I'm a i'm a senator so peace out no it doesn't work that way
3: <laughs> peace out you know it's kind of like saying um you know when i play monopoly and i get this get out of jail free card i get to present it and i actually get out of jail free in the game of monopoly and yeah. then it's like he's out in the real world and saying oh look i have this card doesn't <laughs> this keep me out of jail for free like no that's a game wrong venue go back and play your little game doesn't work here yeah, uh, yeah, I, I fully expect to, to him to have to testify. All right. Now, Kim, is it speech and debate clause or is it speech or debate
1: clause? What's your so that's what's the that's, debate? <laughs> that's a good question. I have always said speech and debate. And I'm looking at Congress's own website when they're talking about how it applies to members of Congress. And they say that it's the speech and debate clause. Mm-hmm. The actual language of the Constitution says something different. Um, I believe that you, you took a look at that, Barb.
3: Yeah, that does say speech or debate, but I think, Mm. you know, you'll hear people talk about it either way. And don't let anybody um, tell you they know the right answer because it's, it's referred to as both. The, the text is speech or debate. If you're a textualist, I guess you say speech or debate. But a lot of people refer to it as speech and debate. So I think they're both right. So Barb, bottom Congress. line,
2: though, Barb, is that it doesn't matter whether it's speech and debate or speech or debate. It does not apply <laughs> to Graham a phone call
3: by Lindsey Graham <laughs> yeah. to Brad Rassenburg. Yeah. No how, no way. <laughs> I'm with you, Jill. All right. Well, finally, um, let's get to the last one. Joyce, what do you make of Liz Cheney's statement about the call a witness received um, from Donald Trump? She said at the end of the hearing there and, and then further saying that it had been referred to the Justice Department for investigation. What's your What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is so interesting, right? Because it could be a crime, but we can't really say whether it is or not based on the limited information we have. The The baseline is that Trump reached out to a former support staff person in the White House. And that's pretty interesting because this was a guy who barely talked to his kids, right? I mean, there was that whole thing on January 6th where the kids had to call Mark Meadows to get in touch with him. So it, it's sort of hard to believe, you know, that he was just reaching out to somebody on the support staff, Um at this point in time. But but here's the problem, and Barb, you and I have talked about this a little bit. If DOJ was treating this like a criminal investigation, it seems really unlikely to me that Liz Cheney would have raised it so quickly at the hearing. Um, and DOJ would have actually been following up with some sort of sort of a covert phone call. If if somebody had brought this to us when we were prosecutors, I think we would have said, great, let's wire the target up and have him return the phone call and see what we can get on tape. Um, and maybe that did happen and very quickly, and then Liz Cheney spoke about it. But I'm sort of reading the fact that she spoke about it as at least some indication that DOJ is not pursuing this. And, and that raises my eyebrows a little bit, because if this had been any defendant, just, you know, a drug case or a bank robbery or anything like that where this was happening, your hard instinct as a prosecutor is to follow up on witness intimidation. And it's the kind of thing where I have seen prosecutors skip Friday afternoon drinks after work, you know, for everybody to stick around and circle the wagons and protect our witnesses. So I think that um, this is a little bit concerning. I hope that DOJ acted very quickly and will wake up one morning to some sort of a Um, conclusion to this setting, but I've got to say I'm not sure at this point. The statute is very broad and expansive, though. 18 U.S.C. 1512 typically covers witness tampering, witness intimidation, and it's important to note that it's broad enough to uh, cover an unsuccessful attempt to intimidate a witness it would cover any kind of effort not only to prevent testimony but to influence testimony to alter testimony even merely seeking to delay testimony can can ring the bell under this statute so lots of latitude for prosecutors to run here if they're inclined to
3: yeah and i also think you don't have to look at this in a vacuum you know i, I know it's certainly not enough to say Trump tried to call somebody, therefore it's obstruction of justice. You know, that alone is not going to be enough. But I do think there's value in investigating. I mean, imagine if it's somebody that he's never called before, you know, I'm the coat check guy. Um, but I saw something and testimony came up uh, about a story and Trump's thinking who else was there? Oh man, the coat check guy was there. I don't want I to make sure the coat check guy doesn't talk. He's never called the coat check guy in his life. And, you know, I, 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 when people are in positions of power, I find so often that they are so arrogant that to them, the coat check guy is just invisible. And so they say all kinds of things, blatantly incriminating things in front of the coat check guy because they, they don't see them. They're invisible to them. They're unimportant. They're insignificant. They, they barely exist. And so the idea that coat check guy gets a call from the former president of the United States who's never called him before, and it happens to come right after some testimony comes out um, involving him, I don't know. I think that you, you might be able to draw some inferences there. I think it also matters whether other witnesses have been contacted. And Cassidy Hutchinson's, uh, I guess, has said, I think they've identified she is the one uh, who has been contacted by intermediaries. So I think it's worth looking at. But I, I agree with you, Joyce, that I think saying this out loud and not, you know, putting up a wire or taking the call says mostly, hey, Trump, we're onto to you. Knock it off.
1: Since the Dobbs decision struck down Roe versus Wade, those seeking to protect access to abortion care on the federal, state, and local level have been busy trying to find ways around state abortion bans. So Joyce, let's start by talking about some of the state and local action. I've been uh, really interested to see how some law enforcement officials and prosecutors say they won't file charges against, for example, medical workers who conduct abortions on uh, on their patients. Is this something they actually have the power to do? And can abortion care providers depend on that?
0: You know, this is such a good question. And I live in one of the counties where my district attorney has announced that he won't prosecute. Um, I value the sentiment. I'm not sure how much it achieves in practice. And I think folks need to be very cautious because, for instance, I would expect that you, if you live in a red state, and I do. Um, That my conservative state attorney general might be really unhappy about this and might decide, uh, as he is authorized to do under state law, to come in and prosecute cases on his own where a district attorney declines to. So I think that this is sort of a buyer beware situation. And even beyond that, you know, these sorts of promises are good for as long as the DA is in office. They're obviously not binding on their successors. So if they're defeated in an election or or even, you know, if they're run over by a bus, God forbid, tomorrow morning, um, that promise could go out with them. I think this is a good time for people to be very cautious Uh, about what they rely on if they're concerned. I I will say, Kim, something interesting that I've noticed in the medical community here is a lot of doctors and a lot of providers who have just had enough and don't really care. And I suspect we will see some early challenges maybe involving medical providers who decide to give women life-saving care, Uh, no matter what the personal consequences are. And and those could be some of the early and very interesting test cases.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I will be watching that very closely. Jill, Uh, I want to talk a bit about what's happening at the federal level. I mean, this week, the House passed a bill to offer some protections for abortion rights, but it's not expected to go anywhere in the Senate with the filibuster still in place. But let's talk about other things that are happening. For example, President Biden's executive order on abortion. What effect will that have? It will have some effect and it's a good start. He has
2: focused on a number of things that I think are very important. One is to make sure that medicated abortion is available no matter what state you're in. And medicated abortion actually is responsible for about half of all abortions in this country. So that's a pretty big group. And keeping it available in states that have now barred abortion would be a major thing. He's also made sure that hospitals that have federal monies that get anything under Medicare or Medicaid understand that they must provide emergency care to anyone who presents at the hospital in extremis for any reason, including a, a, a partial abortion that's, you know, sort of underway or an ectopic pregnancy. They must provide that care. And this isn't a change in the law. That was just sort of a reminder that was sent to hospitals that get federal money to remind them that they must allow doctors to provide those kinds of care. Um, and so those are, are you know good things. There are a number of things that are happening um, outside of any of the things we've talked about. In addition to what the president has announced in his executive order, um, states and localities are taking some actions. Michigan, thank you, Barbara, we're very happy it's Michigan, has proposed an amendment to their own constitution to protect abortion. Crowd
3: signer of the of the petition, right here. Did you? Oh, good for you! And
2: well, they have then. enough signatures to get it on the ballot, and I think it's going to play a pretty big role in the November election. So that's that's a pretty important thing. Um, although ballot initiatives have pros and cons, and they can get lost. And uh, Arizona tried one, but it was badly written, and it included a viability standard, and then they get challenged in court. And so that can be hard. Uh, it, it's always hard to change the Constitution. Um, but states are also creating access networks with other states. And Illinois, which I'm proud to be part of, um, is a place that many states are sending patients and they're sending doctors along with it. And so I think that those are the kinds of things that will help to make it more available. Uh, yeah. injunctions are being sought against laws. Uh, the Louisiana law is in sort of limbo right now. It was, it was banned. The ban was rejected. Uh, the injunction was granted. Then it was taken away. Then it's been granted again. Um, so I, I don't know how that's going to end up turning out. Um, a personhood bill has been defeated in Arizona, which would have really ended things because it would have granted personhood to a fetus, but the lawsuit um, of an aborted fetus has been sued by the father. The doctor has been sued for having taken away his child, Um, and that case is still pending. So there are things that need to be done at the federal level, at the state level, and from local prosecutors.
1: Yeah, and it's important to know, too, that it's not just... um Democratic lawmakers and executives that are doing this in Massachusetts, for example, it has a Roe Act, you know, it's to me, I thought, oh, well, they've done everything they could. And the, the Republican governor there actually signed an executive order to protect providers from being um, from liability from other states where they somehow illegal, make it illegal to travel uh, to provide care or to receive care, which again, I, I, I don't know how that's constitutional, but um, it's important to acknowledge that. So Barb, the DOJ, Department of Justice, created a task force on abortion this week as well. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, you know, this was um, a, a task force. It's being led by Vanita Gupta. You know, she's a name uh, people probably know, or, or at least should know. She's the associate attorney general, long, deep career in civil rights um, and yeah, I don't know that this happens without someone like her in this leadership position, you know, number two position, uh, number three position in the justice department. And, um, you know, you don't have a lot of women who, who have risen historically to that level. And so I think it's significant that she's there, but this task force has been charged with monitoring and evaluating state and local legislation, um, and considering legal action against states that have banned abortion medication or, uh, travel out of state for an abortion, which would be under the constitution illegal. And so I think that if laws are passed in some of these states, and we see these kinds of interference with rights, that we're going to see lawsuits from the justice department. And that's where the rubber's going to meet the road. I think, you know, Brett Kavanaugh wrote in his concurring opinion in Dobbs that nothing about this opinion should in any way affect the right to travel. Uh, but of course that is based on that same foundation that uh, row was the right to an abortion, which was substantive due process, that idea of fundamental rights that cannot be taken away, even though they're not enumerated under the Ninth Amendment. Uh, certain rights that have existed traditionally and historically cannot be we should you know presume that they are still there, that they have not been taken away. Um, and so the right to travel is one of those. And so I think that'll be really interesting. So I think if if a state passes one of these laws, uh, we can expect this task force to file a lawsuit, um, and which will, you know, no doubt percolate up. And it's 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 an interesting issue because if there's no right to travel, that means there's also no right to travel out of state to, say, uh, you know, participate in gambling in Las Vegas uh, and, you know, other economic activities. And so, you know, it'll be an interesting face-off between whether people feel more strongly about their, you know, religious views about protecting a fetus or uh, whether they feel more strongly about the economic rights that would get limited by controlling someone's right to an, um To travel. Although, who am I uh, assuming there will be consistency, right? Maybe they just say you can't travel for an abortion, but you can travel to
1: gamble. Oh, man, we are shocked, shocked to hear that there is travel (laughs) happening for gambling. So um, I I just want to ask all of you guys, so people who uh, support these abortion bans or abortion opponents um, claim that some of these actions, particularly the the federal actions to try to get around uh, these Abortion bans are violating federal federalism principles um, by imposing on imposing on states' ability to regulate abortion. What what do you guys say to that? Do they have a point? Is is it not the role of the federal government to step in and say, "Hey, states, you can't do this"?
2: It isn't, in my mind, a valid argument because I value the federal role, and I think the federal role is to guarantee certain rights. Now, it's a little complicated now because not only has the Supreme Court said there is no constitutional right to an abortion, uh, but they've also taken a case that would say that basically the states are independent of everything and you can't even review state on even election things. So I hesitate answering because under this Supreme Court, almost anything is possible, but I think that our founders in the balance between state rights and federal rights gave certain rights to the federal government that, in this case, would prevail, and that this is not a violation of states' rights to have federal action to protect the rights of women. I still think what we need is the Equal Rights Amendment, and I'm going to work to make sure that we try to get that adopted because it has been approved by the right number of
3: states and it should become part of the Constitution immediately. I'll interject just briefly to agree with Jill that in federalism, there's a role for state governments and there's a role for federal governments. And if the state should uh overreach on its rights, then it is the job of the Justice Department to step in and protect those federal rights. You know, for example, just as we were just talking about the right to travel. If a state and Missouri is talking about this, other states are talking about this, says it is illegal for you to leave our state to go obtain an abortion, which is illegal in a neighboring state, that is a violation of a constitutional right to travel. And I would expect our Justice Department to fight to protect that right. So I think each Uh, sovereign has its lane and there is nothing about this task force that is violating the lane of the federal government. Nothing about the HHS work, nothing about the executive order. All of those things are appropriate exercises of federal power.
0: You know, like Jill, I'm very worried about what the Supreme Court might do, but even in the Dobbs decision itself, the court was explicit about saying that what they were doing was sending the option back to the states about whether abortion would be legal in its borders or not. And they explicitly contemplated that there might be differing laws across states. And Justice Kavanaugh was explicit about the fact that women would be able to travel. So this notion at this point of raising federal concerns is not only, as as you Jill and you Barb have pointed out, not well grounded in the law, It um, seems to run contrary to what the court told us we could expect as a country. I would hope that the court itself would honor this very, I mean, this is a low bar that the the court set for protecting women, but, you know, this is the bar. I would hope that they would honor it. This has been one of those weeks that just elicits so many questions. I think that's why we've had so much to talk about today. Even for us, the questions just really come fast and furious in a week like this, and we have had great questions from our listeners to answer. If you've got questions for us, please email them to us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. And if we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week because we'll try to answer as many of them as we can. Our first question this week comes from Lindsay. And Barb, I think this one is meant for you. Lindsay asks if we can explore the distinction between, excuse me, Lindsay asks if we can explore the distinction between manslaughter and negligent homicide which Lindsay says they guess doesn't apply as well, but they're not sure why. And and they're asking how good this line of reasoning is. If one's goal is some sort of basic human accountability, is there some hope to be held out? What what do you think,
3: Barb? Well, welcome to first-year criminal law, Lindsay. This is a big topic <laughs> of discussion. It's probably um, ringing some bells for all of you, right, who uh, sat through criminal law as a first-year law student, as most do. Um you know, there are all these different gradations of homicide. So the worst is um, a, uh, you know, a, a, a crime committed with malice, aforethought. a forethought, a deliberate murder. You lie in wait and you poison them or shoot them or kill them or in some other way. But then you also have these kinds of accidental deaths. And so manslaughter could be one. It's, a, you know, it's, it, it's an involuntary death, but somebody ends up dead. And then there's also negligent homicide, which is also an accidental death. And there is a gradation between the two. Manslaughter means I acted recklessly. Now, each state can define their statutes as they want to, but typically manslaughter requires a level of recklessness, which means that a person disregarded a risk of which they were aware. So say, I don't know, hypothetically, a president is aware that there is a is thousands, thousands of people in a mob attacking the U.S. Capitol, resulting in death, and you do nothing. You sit idly by when you have an affirmative duty to do that. If you're aware of that risk, that could be manslaughter. Negligent homicide, on the other hand, is a slightly lower standard that is, a person disregarded a risk of which he should have been aware. So maybe, oh, I don't know, say hypothetically, um, a president is sitting in the, in the White House watching on television, and uh, he's uh, he, he is oblivious to the fact that people may be dying inside, and he just thinks it's all a great show. And he was not aware of any actual risk, but he really should have been. That would be negligent homicide.
0: So that's a fascinating um, sort of romp through first year law school and criminal law. I'll be interested to see if we have reason to revisit that, Barb. Um, Our our next question comes from Judy. And Judy says, why is it that ignorance of the law is, quote, no excuse, yet we hear so much about needing to prove intent, especially when it comes to prosecuting Donald Trump? How is this not a double standard? Different statutes, different standards, she asks. What can we tell Judy, y'all?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I really love this question. Um, I will try to give it uh, give it a shot. Although I am not as good uh, at criminal law, as, as good a, a criminal law professor as Barb is. I wish my criminal law professor was as cool as you, Barb. Um, so you are correct that ignorance of the law is no excuse. But many laws, not all of them, but many criminal statutes have an element of something that's called mens rea, which means you have to have the intent to commit the act, which is illegal. That's different from intent uh, based on your knowledge that it's illegal. So an example is, let's say I had no idea that bank robbery was illegal. Like anything involved in a bank robbery broke any law. I just did not know. I thought you could just go rob a bank whenever you want to. And I go and I rob a bank. The, The intent isn't to break a law. The intent is to take the money. So as long as the uh, prosecutors prove the intent to commit the action of sticking up this bank and taking the money, that's the mens rea that's required, not knowing that it is illegal. So I understand how that's confusing, but they're two different things.
0: Our last question is about a story I know we've all been following closely for the last 24 hours. This story that uh, the Secret Service reportedly, according to their inspector general, Uh, that they deleted some text messages. And those text messages happen to have uh, been on January 5 and January 6. And so the question is, what do you make of these erasures? Is there something nefarious or is it innocent? What do you think?
2: There's no way it's innocent. That's too much of a coincidence that it happened to be on January 5th and 6th, yes, things can go wrong with computers. We all know that. And it is possible to lose maybe from one device. But they're not lost from the backup cloud or from the backup mainframe. I don't believe that that's possible. And it just it's so weird. It's like the 18 and a half minute gap, which happened exactly at the moment in a tape of many, many hours, but the 18-minute gap was exactly when Watergate was being discussed. Everything else was fine on the tape. That's not an accidental erasure. It was obviously deliberate. Or like maybe the, what was it, how many hours was missing from the calendar? Um, That's not an accident when it's at a time that's already suspicious. So I would say that we have a lot to look at here. It's certainly investigation worthy. And that's what should be happening. It must be investigated.
1: What do y'all think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's mighty convenient. I mean we we don't we won't know until the investigation is complete but yes my thoughts when that happened were how convenient. Did you see the really over the top statement that the Secret Service
3: communications <laughs> director it really sounded like it came from the pen of Trump. But you know there's one thing in there and you know um listeners always try to share with you thoughts about how to spot a bad argument and one of them is this overly broad argument that um maybe technically accurate, but I think potentially misleading. Um, it says that, uh, the office of inspector general requested electronic communications for the first time on February 26, 2021, after the migration was well underway. So Joyce, I know you and I have been involved in these big migrations in a huge agency, thousands of employees. They don't like change out everybody's phone on the same day. They say, you know, a third of you are getting your new phone on this day, and, you know, this office is getting their new phones on that day. And it takes months to do one of these rollouts. So the rollout began on February 26th. But what the inspector general is saying is the particular phones that we want were not erased until after that day. And the statement does not address that. So um, I think there is certainly room here for further investigation.
0: You know, I'm always willing to entertain the notion that incompetence is involved sure, of when course. we're talking about government. And Barb, something a I know remember from—yeah, I, I mean, you know—and <laughs> it's it's um, incompetence. It's it's certainly a lack of judgment. Somebody in the leadership at the Secret Service should have put the brakes on this the minute January 6th yep. occurred, right? They should have said, "There's going to be stuff on our phones that we need." I mean, the Secret yes, Service, their sure. policy is to not text and and that frankly, and and it's worth pointing out, I think that in the early years of the Obama administration, there's a memo called the the Ogden memo. It's a records retention memo that's uh, directed primarily towards criminal investigative teams. But it says, you know, you really shouldn't use text messages or emails for substantive communications, because sometimes we have to turn those things over in discovery. And so the best practice is not to use them for that. And the secret service is included under that memo. And that's a mentality that sort of filters out from criminal investigative teams, even to folks on protection details. You don't want to get into a situation where your emails or your text messages become discoverable down the road and the service also, for security reasons, because text, text messages can be hacked, tries to not use text or email. Um, but that said, and given the fact that government technology seems to always be a decade behind the private sector It's really hard to believe that with all the experience that we had in like 2005 and six with these early rollouts um, of first generation, you know, well, the old Blackberries and first generation iPhones, that they haven't figured out by now that before you do, um, uh, before you move to a new phone, you back up all your data, right? That's what you do at home when you get a new phone. You back up all your data. And there are reasons, including criminal discovery, that this stuff has to all be backed up. So my thought is that the um, Secret Service might find these text messages and be able to produce them. I remember there was some question when um, the Trump administration was concerned about Pete Strzok and Lisa Page at the FBI, and there were some missing text messages. And the FBI was able to recover those. I know that they've done that in criminal cases I expect that whatever the Secret Service agents were talking about should be available pretty rapidly and, and that information will become accessible.
2: So Barb, you mentioned something and Joyce, you mentioned something that make me want to respond. One, deliberately misleading may be in that constitutional Supreme Court case that says deliberately misleading but literally true, which is what you said it was, is not perjury. But I also want to raise the issue of the coincidence of the dates and the fact that the Secret Service agent, who was the the chief of staff, deputy chief of staff for Donald Trump, was a Secret Service agent before that and has returned as the deputy director of the Secret Service. And I, I know this may sound conspiracy theory like, and I don't mean it in that way, but again, it's just one of those things that makes me say it needs to be investigated. We need to see if we can find the missing texts, and we need to see if there's anything nefarious about why they are
0: missing. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sisters in law. Go to politicon.com merch to buy our pale blue tea hoodie and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors. Hello, Fresh, Noom, Helix policy genius, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes, but please support them. They really help make the show happen. If you keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sisters law on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law.
3: Baba <laughs> Sue. You are doing so well. You almost nailed it. It sounded like babaloo. Babaloo, <laughs> I
1: was thinking that's who it Ricky Ricardo.
3: Babaloo. <laughs> Sorry.
2: I just... <laughs> oh, I was doing so Sorry. good on that.
3: Do I have to do that? Let's take it from the top. I'm sorry. Get the the
1: image of Ricky Ricardo out of your head. I'm sorry Uh, I did that. I
3: know. I just was saying it. It's awful. This is sounding more like Lucy with Vitamita Benjamin.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm not going to be able to stop laughing now. (laughs)